Welcome back to the Connecting Minds podcast. Christian Yordanov here. Simon Esler is our guest today. A little bit about Simon. His full bio is in the description. Uh, Simon Esler is a seasoned actor, writer, filmmaker, unschooling father, and longtime truth teller on a mission to win the ongoing war against free thought and human liberty. With over 15 years of experience as a theater maker, five years as a professional content creator and a background as a former minister, Simon uplifts hidden truths using deep insight and laughter as weapons. And today's main topic of conversation will be his latest film, Cut, Daughters of the West. So Simon, thank you so much for joining us. Glad to be here. Can you tell us a little bit about your history, your background as a former minister? I'm kind of curious. Yes. So um, I was very interested in ceremony and ritual and the role that that those things played uh, sort of throughout human history. And I, I was not actually coming from a particularly religious perspective. Uh, when I was growing up, our family sort of dabbled. Um, you know, we tried church for a while and then it really didn't feel right for us. And so we didn't continue that. Um, my parents ended up introducing me to transcendental meditation uh, when I was a teenager. And uh, that was a really interesting experience. And that actually kind of got me hooked on the ritual of meditation. I started studying a lot of different schools of meditation. I got into Buddhism. So I was very big into this sort of 40,000 foot view of, of religion, ritual, ceremony, and the role that it plays. And I ended up uh, taking a course to become certified uh, as what's called a life cycle celebrant. And so this was the study of the art and history of ceremony and ritual. And they taught us how to create custom ceremonies from scratch. And, uh, you know, for example, this was in regards to weddings, let's say, uh, you know, how do you make a ceremony that is uh, authentically representative of a couple coming from two different faiths or two different cultural backgrounds? Mm -hmm. You know, so um, when I was a minister doing these weddings, you know, there was one couple, they were, uh, one was of Jamaican descent and the other was of Chinese descent. And so we ended up making their unity ritual when they're up on the altar, uh, exchanging dumplings to each other <laughs> from their culture, you know? And nice. so they had the Chinese dumpling, the Jamaican dumpling. So it was all about that customization. And, you know, this interested me because I saw that there was a movement away from religion in one sense because I think there's been a reaction to some of the corruption of re religion and some of the ways that the dogma has been used, but there's still this passion for spirituality and for ceremony and ritual. So I got certified as a life cycle celebrant and they actually connected me with a place here in Ontario called the Bancroft Center for Awakening Spiritual Growth. And that was a church that I got set up with to become ordained legally as a minister here in Ontario. And so it was through my studies with them and my studies as a life cycle celebrant that I became ordained as a minister and started doing these awesome. custom wedding ceremonies. So that's sort of how I ended up on that path. And, and I'm in a very different place with it now, but I still hold this sort of fascination, this understanding for the fundamental ways that ceremony and ritual actually support human life. That's incredible, dude. Actually, the, the guy that married us was a, a dude from Peru who is a huachumero. You know, he does uh, ceremonies with uh, San, the San Pedro uh, sacrament and when he was marrying us uh, he was smudging us with a uh, copal and we're do uh, you know he was doing all these blessings and all of our friends and family that were there they were uh, just like 
I could see their faces. They were like, what the fuck is going on here? so but um the the that friend taught me that the the sort of the beauty of creating rituals around everything which i think is quite amazing um so you're quite a let's let's just put it lightly eclectic individual um let's shift the topic of focus to your latest film cut daughters of the west for the listeners and viewers would you mind telling us what briefly what the film is about they will discuss that further later on and what compelled you to make what is a fairly i suppose controversial topic make a film out of that so um there's a couple different angles uh into this film that i think uh, explains my my inspiration to do it so one is my study of the war on the family so i had been studying for years the war on the traditional family unit I had actually uh, just finished making a six-part docu-series on that called Superorganism. Um, and so in that docu-series, I explored the occulted war on the family alongside this ideal of the family as a superorganism designed to cultivate human wisdom and knowledge and cast it as a legacy through the generations. And so I wanted to explore that perspective of the traditional family from a biological, spiritual, psychological perspective. Because from my studies of the war on the family, this is one of the particular things that uh, they are attempting to stop. They don't want the family to function as a system to generate legacies of knowledge and wisdom. Instead, there is a desire by you know people in power right now who want to reorganize our, our society to make it so that children cannot depend on a family line of knowledge and wisdom and are therefore dependent upon the state. They're dependent upon media. They're dependent upon public schooling. So that was one understanding that I developed through my studies for that docuseries. In looking at the war in the family more explicitly, I found that there seemed to be operations, warfare operations, targeting the father in specific ways, targeting the mother in specific ways, and targeting the children in specific ways. And when I got into what was being used to target the children, it looked very much to me like gender ideology and all that was going on, especially in the schools, it seemed to be like a kind of psychological warfare operation that was ongoing. And so I ended up studying that for that series and uh, ended up understanding more than I could communicate in the docuseries. And specifically, I came to understand that this was disproportionately affecting girls. So that's the one angle that I came to this from. The other is that really just growing up, I was very aware of the negative impact of our culture on girls, on what it meant for teenage girls to try to become women and the struggles that were ongoing there, uh, the struggles with girls for mental health and body issues, and how that connects to the way that um, girls and women's bodies are commodified and they're sort of targeted by the medical industrial complex, by the pharmaceutical industry. You know, I actually had a friend uh, in high school who dropped dead from being given the wrong pharmaceutical medication because she was struggling with bulimia. Um, and so, you know, this was a real part of my life growing up. She actually ended up uh, becoming a, uh, her story became a big deal because her father, uh, her name was Vanessa Young. Her father fought to try to get justice. And actually you can look this up. There's something called Vanessa's law here in Canada. And that is based on trying to protect people from the harms of the pharmaceutical industry. Um, and so that, that story was part of my life growing up and, and generally sensing the way that our culture was targeting girls. Uh, it always kind of made me feel sick to my stomach. So coming with all of that, you know, when I started to realize the gender ideology was specifically affecting girls and it was causing this explosion in teen girls 
identifying as trans and seeking out permanent medical transitions, I felt a real need to to call uh, awareness to this on a couple of levels. Uh, number one, I just thought people should understand that it's not equally affecting boys and girls, that it is the daughters who are very much being impacted by this. But number two, I wanted to try to take it out of the hyper-political narratives that tend to saturate this conversation, which is why I took a deeper look into the cosmetic surgery industry in general. And what I found was pretty shocking was that before the explosion in girls seeking out these gender treatments, uh, there was actually this massive sort of exponential rise in girls seeking out uh, not just breast augmentations, but labiaplasties and getting these cosmetic genital surgeries just to try to make their genitals look better. Uh, and that this is rising in younger and younger girls. We're talking about minors getting permanent genital surgery in these rising numbers. And to me, that showed that there is something much more going on here than just the insertion of gender ideology into our culture, that there are norms, long-standing, ongoing norms in our society that are dangerous for girls, especially girls trying to become healthy women. And so I wanted to invite people into that broader context and make a film that neutralized some of that political hype uh, so that there is a conversation to be had that perhaps both sides of the political aisle could enter into. Incredible, dude. Incredible. Um, I haven't yet had the time to watch it, but I, I did watch the trailer and I'm already like, damn, this is, it's going to be powerful. Can we, can we, just before we get into the, the war on children, can you briefly maybe give us a few points on what, how, how do you differentiate between the war on the mother and the war on the father, uh, based on your research and during the production of Superorganism? Sure. Um, well, we're looking at this really, when it comes to the fathers, there's a lot going on that's very cultural and psychological. So the, the psyche of men, the psyche of, uh, you know, healthy masculinity, uh, this is under attack by things like the, the concept of toxic masculinity, the idea that, uh, men are inherently violent and dangerous, uh, literally an attack on the idea of testosterone. Um, a lot of this comes from radical uh, left-wing theories that are being developed in the universities. Um, but some of it just comes from generic culture. I think we can all see the extent to which our culture has always depicted fathers as just kind of bumbling idiots that don't know what they're doing. Homer Simpson. Struggled. Yeah, the Homer Simpson, the Peter Griffins, all the ads of the goonish fathers that don't know what's happening. That is a kind of warfare because it's a kind of conditioning um, that really affects the way we see fathers. It affects the way that we see the importance and the ideal of fathers in our society. So doing that again and again in our culture, to me, that is a form of warfare because um, it's so much repetition. It becomes solidified in the culture. And, uh, you know, it's something that I came up against. I realized that that had affected me when I first found out I was going to be a father. Uh, I noticed that in myself, that I had been conditioned into this idea, and I was very skeptical of that. And so I wanted to do some research into what what really happens, even just biologically, to men when they become fathers. And what I found was pretty incredible. Um, uh, I found research showing that men, if they are devoted to the mother, so when she is pregnant, if they are devoted, and devoted here is really defined by being present, you know, being supportive, and being in her actual physical presence as the baby is developing, that actually changes the father's biology. So the mother emits a kind of biofield. And when the father is present during the gestation, it actually changes him hormonally. It changes his emotional experience. 
There are studies that show that fathers who are present and devoted during the pregnancy, they have a rise in what's called prolactin. And they found that the fathers who got this rise in prolactin as a result of being near the pregnant woman, uh, that caused their bodies to be more responsive to their children after the child was born. So more responsive to the cries of the baby. So it actually altered and tuned the men's bodies to be more connected to their children. But this is happening through the mother's body. This kind of information, um, you know, to me, this should be front and center in our culture. It should be celebrated. There should be, uh, there should be ways that we uplift this information, um, but it's completely absent. So this idea that fatherly devotion has a biological component, that it transforms men, you know, that to me was antithetical to the way that men were depicted and the way that a lot of men fall into the trap of being absent by just overworking and not actually being present during the pregnancy. So there's that. There's also uh, studies that show that... Um, the first time men hold their newborn child, they have a temporary drop of testosterone in their bodies by about 33%, which really you're dealing with it changing their emotional landscape in that moment. And the, the man is being designed in that moment to have a deeper emotional connection with his child. So we are, as men, designed for fatherly devotion, whereas you know we are depicted just so ridiculously in the culture. So I would say that that is really a good way of understanding the war on fathers in a in a cultural and psychological way. With the mothers, we're really looking at uh, it's from all angles, and I think it's important that people understand that women in general, the female form, has been attacked on so many levels, uh, and that is it's especially disturbing because of how long-standing it is and how many ways it has happened. So one of the ways is the infiltration of women's liber liberation with sort of radical feminist theory that actually disassociated the mother from the family. And so this whole push to replace breastfeeding with formula, for example, that is antithetical to the woman's role that she's playing in breastfeeding that, um, that formula could ever replace breastfeeding is, is simply nonsense. Laughable, yeah. It's ridiculous, right? Because you're not just talking about nourishment. The child is actually experiencing a wide range of information. So in addition, in addition to the, the, the nutrients and the nourishment, they're also learning forms of emotional self-regulation. Um, when they're having that skin-to-skin -skin contact, they are in the biofield generated by the mother's heart. And so if the mother is in a state of gratitude or happiness, the field being generated by her heart, it is bringing the child's heart into a coherent state with her. So there are forms of non-linguistic information being passed on to the child. Um, and you know this is dangerous when we consider the fact that breastfeeding in the United States disappeared for about a 50-year period. Um, so you have that, you have the, the, the sort of, uh, the, the medicalization of birth that made birth into a medical emergency, but rushing women to the hospital in a panic, having their bodies completely dominated by men, having them lay down when actually women should be squatting most of the time when they're giving birth, yep. the rise in C-sections. Uh, and that's not just C-sections as an emergency. That is the culture surrounding birth changing to the extent that some women are signing up for their c-sections yeah you're right the elective c-section they don't want to deal with it um and we can see all these different ways that the female form is being attacked and it is about their biology the capacity for the woman to bear life is is undermined and a lot of the 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 girls in my film the detransitioners, some of them talk about this, about how motherhood was made out to be something scary and unappealing, something they never would want to do. Um, so, you know, this is the war on motherhood that is ongoing. And now we can see that uh, with gender ideology, you have this, this the crescendo of this attack on women 
coming through in the fact that you have biological men taking over women's spaces, women being told that they are, you know, that they are transphobic if they don't want to have biological men in their spaces. You have women's sports competitions being dominated by biological men. That to me is only possible because of the decades of cultural and psychological and biological warfare that is undermining our capacity to really connect with the female form. Well, that that was really well well put. And is all of this research in Superorganism, the series, yeah? Yeah, yeah, in that six-part series. So people can watch episode one for free. The link is on my website. And then to watch the rest of the series, you go to dauntlessdialogue.com and that's a streaming platform yeah. you can sign up for. Yeah, yeah, we, we, we will have the links in there. So is the, do you have the research on the rise in prolactin and the drop in testosterone where, where you know, when the father holds the child for the first time? Do you have like st studies you could share with me later on that I could perhaps, you know, read and reference in some of my future content and stuff like that? Yeah, actually, the majority of that comes from a book. Uh, I believe it's called Why Fathers Matter or Do Fathers Matter? And it's specifically all about this. He goes okay. through, there's more than what I just presented there. The whole book is really founded on this idea that fathers deeply matter on a biological level. Um, really, really good book. And that Incredible. was a big inspiration for me as a father. Yeah, dude, you, you hit, you ticked so many boxes. Like, for example, the breastfeeding thing, the the giving birth in hospital. For example, my my uh, myself and my wife, well, mostly my wife, <laughs> and my, I, I was there super <laughs> helping out, but we did a home birth um, almost two years ago at this point. And uh, just the whole experience uh, compared to what friends and uh, um, acquaintances told us about their birth experience in a hospital, I felt so relieved that we... We, we were blessed to do it and we didn't have any complications needing us to, you know, go to the, go to the hospital. To be honest with you, most of the women that we, that I've spoken to that gave birth during the times that we, we gave birth uh, or my wife gave birth, it was kind of COVID times, not as bad as the first year, but it was 2022. So not as bad as the first two years, but they all had a look of, being traumatized in their eyes just from this the birth and i think about what you just said that you <laughs> you we, through the mechanism of heart coherence the mother's biofield is tuning the baby's biofield think of all that extra stress all those stress hormones and neurotransmitters and everything else um what what an impact that will have and then okay it's bad enough if that makes it into the breast milk but if you go for a c-section now you can't uh you probably can't breastfeed then you're onto the formula which is a whole other kettle of fish so the attack is definitely multi-pronged and like I, like I heard you say um multi-generational so wh where from here do we do we tackle the children uh is, do you want to sort of give us other than the gender ideology attack what other attacks? I mean, we can. I'm, I'm, I can list a few off the top of my head, but I don't want to put words in your mouth. What other attacks are our children being subjected to nowadays? Well, I mean, when you look at, like, we can just start with what we were talking about right there with the birthing, right? Um, that also ends up being an attack on the child, right? Because they're losing access to resources, and and you're causing trauma right from the first moment of life right? Uh, we, we, we did a similar thing. Both of our children were born at home um, and we were very much focused 
on trying to reduce the the potential trauma of coming into this world. So you're looking at a population that's born into trauma. Um, and so they already are going to have to heal from that to an extent. Um, so you have that foundational uh, element to it all. But I think one of the reasons things like that get overlooked uh, is because we are disassociated from innocence and from the role that innocence is playing in us as adults. And then, of course, in the children. Um, and it is uh, this ongoing war on innocence that I think has affected us generationally in a number of ways. So in gender, the whole gender ideology craze, you have a lot of parents who are willfully having their children uh, altered medically in permanent ways, parents who are willfully exposing their small children to hypersexual experiences with adults being very sexual, stripping, you know, receiving money and then encouraging the kids to do the same thing and receive money. So you have these instances. And my understanding is that one of the reasons parents are participating in things like that is because they are themselves disassociated from their own innocence. And if a parent cannot be connected to their own innocence, their own inner child, then the innocence of their child is actually masked from them. They cannot see it coming to harm because they have no sense of that in themselves. So this is why that the war on innocence and the war on children, it can stretch into the generations. And it's why it's important for us as adults to be doing this healing and to be discovering innocence, you know, uh, and to, to be reconnecting with that. That's part of standing up for the children is finding balance in yourself so that you have a sense of innocence and of what innocence is in you. Um, and so I think that, that spreads out into a lot of what's going on. There's a lot of very subtle subversive forms of, of this manipulation going on. So right now we can see a lot of sort of sexualization of children and exposing children to sexual content, but you could take this even further back. So, you know, there are researchers who talk about um, children's content having um, adult romance in it for very, very young children and how confusing it is for children to be seeing these adult romance stories playing out in everything they're watching and seeing, you know, that goes back a long way. Or you have like all the old Disney movies yeah. where films yeah. like Bambi with the parents are dying and they yeah, start off with trauma, right? It's disgusting. It goes on for a long time. So I think I look at the war on innocence as this foundational attack on children. And then of course it branches into a lot of operations. But if we can see that with enough clarity, then we can start to get situational awareness that allows us to protect the children against some of the more overt situations that I think a lot of us are awake to. But, but even some of the other situations where, um, you know, maybe we might be allowing our children to be traumatized if we're in a moment of disassociation from our own past traumas, from the healing we have to do. Uh, you know, that's something that I've definitely recognized in raising my children. Right? I notice moments when maybe an old trauma of mine is coming up. And I've actually been able to observe in that moment that I cannot sense my child's innocence when I'm in that state of pain or that state of release that I have to really work to be like, whoa, I can see myself getting disassociated and just try to bring way more awareness to that in that moment um, and bring a lot of mindfulness to those moments so that I can try to cultivate um, that sense of being a protector. Uh, and, and that's important as a man because there's, you know, there is this push to have men stand up and be warriors and that's super important. But I think we have to also understand that part of the war on men is that uh, men carry the trauma of war from generations. Men, It is men who went to war and suffered yeah. these horrible traumas. That is also within men. And so the man's challenge is, is the challenge of the philosopher king. 
is to be that king that can lead that army, but to also be the philosopher who can soften inside and be introspective and, and be present with children in that way. And I think that's, that's a big part of balancing ourselves as men to stand up for the kids. Wow. I love that, dude. I love that. So you're also an unschooling father. Uh, what, what, I mean, we all, we know what unschooling is. I'm sure many people listening know what unschooling is. I personally, my, my kid is not even two years old, but I'm, I'm already worrying about the fact that in Portugal, to homeschool your kid, you have to have a, a degree and you have to follow the Portuguese curriculum, which is like, if I'm going to be teaching the same garbage to my child, what's the point? Um, so I, I, I'd love to hear kind of what you're doing in terms of unschooling and maybe we can get some ideas. If, uh, can you give us some ideas if our kids are at school, let's say because of a job, because of laws or whatever, how can we mitigate some of the negative effects of the schooling system using the principles the principles of unschooling so it's kind of a two-part question there sure yeah absolutely um so uh we are very focused on child-led learning uh and very focused on learning through play through uh dramatic play free play um so you know we we did a lot of research before we had kids um I actually have a series on Rise TV called Worlds Within. And one of the seasons of that series was all about the history of public schooling and sort of the mysteries of human learning that are, uh, you know, occulted or just not known. And so I looked very deeply into what human learning really is and, and what is happening when a child is learning. So, you know, there's a good way to look at this. Um, when, when children are born and they are very young, so in this preschool age, you can see that they are passionate about learning and they are learning fast and they are doing a lot of it on their own, right? They are sponges. They are seeking to absorb as much of the world and culture and mom and dad and everything that they can. And they are growing because they are born with the intrinsic desire to learn what serves them and what they are interested in, what they are passionate about that is in them already. So if you take this idea that children are inherently designed to learn and to soak up what they need to learn to survive in this world, then it starts to look more and more strange the extent to which the schools seek to interfere with that process and to manipulate it and control it. And it's the attitude in the design of the public schooling system is almost one of, uh, of, of uh, the children won't learn if you don't force them to learn which is silly when you look at the way that young children operate before they go into school. So um, there's that element to it of it. And, and, and that very much has been a focus for us, realizing that one of the major obstacles in educating children and, and child rearing today is actually adult interference. There is so much adult interference because adults are afraid that the child won't learn and they project that fear onto the child and they start to try to manipulate the child's experience to try to calm themselves down because they're afraid the child won't learn. Um, and so we, for us, the, the term unschooling has very much been applied to us as parents getting the schooling out of us so we don't project <laughs> it onto the kids, right? Right, right. So my son, uh, my, my oldest son, he's eight years old. This is a good example. Um, we, we did not enforce any curriculum or any, uh, any push or anything. And I'll say specifically, even in regards to reading. We did nothing in terms of trying to teach him to read. It was only specifically about his interests, following his passion. 
And I'll admit there were a few moments when I kind of got anxious about it because we had family members freaking out being like, what are you doing? Why aren't you teaching them? Why aren't you like <laughs> sitting them down for reading lessons every day? <laughs> and we had to really like <clears throat> let go of that programming and, and really, really trust the child and follow their passion, follow their learning style. And we have learned so much from this. So he's now eight. He completely taught himself to read wow. by himself, Dude. right? Nothing to do with us because this <laughs> is what children are designed for. So he now is super empowered because he's like, I taught myself to read, you know? So he's just like, he's amped up about this. And and his style of teaching himself to do that, this was like, we don't really know how he did it. It, it really wasn't our business because what he would do is he would go and take a stack of books and just sit and just flip through the books by himself for like sometimes like an hour, hour and a half. He would just do these sessions. So we don't know what he was doing inside of himself when he was doing that. You know, he's not doing phonetics. He's not sounding the words out. It was all his own private internal process. And we had to trust in that. And then just boom, all of a sudden he could read and he was fine all his own. And I'll say, even if you look at the mainstream science, he is perfectly aligned with the median age of when kids really start to learn to read is around seven or eight, even, even in school. Right. So it's funny because the school is claiming that it's doing it, but you actually have the natural age of when that clicks for kids is around that age. Mm. So we left him alone. It happened by itself. We have a younger kid um, who's uh, just turned five and he's very passionate about reading, but he is very much about that phonetic style. So he likes to sound it out and put the letters together and like talk to us about it in that way. But we can see that their learning styles are very, very different. And if we had tried to impose the same thing on both of them, it was just going to be chaos. Like there was a few times as a father when I was like, come learn to read. And I tried to show my kid, it was like, get out of here. No, no, <laughs> not doing that. Um, and he was correct. He was correct in rejecting like my sort of advances to do that schooling model. So we, we're very passionate about that unlearning model. We can see that... Um, Schooling uses what's called operant conditioning. So operant conditioning is when you use an external operant to try to condition a human being into the correct behavior. So that means the punishment of getting the F or the reward of getting the A. And so it's do this and get the A, but if you don't do this, you'll get the F. And so instead of the child seeking out that intrinsic desire to learn that is within them, they end up trying to avoid the punishment and seek the reward. And it externalizes this whole process and so it actually disturbs the natural capacity to learn that children are born with. Now, for families who, you know, they're in a position where they have to, they have to have their children in school, there are ways to mitigate this. I know families that are doing this. And that really comes down to the depth of your relationship with your child. So how much time, deep, meaningful time you're having uh, with them to discuss what's going on at school, really unpacking it and keeping a focus on free thought. And I think free thought is a really good anchor for this so that the children can learn to understand what is happening at school, but maintain their ability to think freely. And, and I think that just comes from knowing your child very deeply and continuing to unpack the experiences that they're having. Um, and free thought, the best definition of, that I found, free thought has to do with using logic, reason, and empiricism um, to understand reality without using dogma, authority, and tradition. And uh, empiricism is a good sort of central part of that definition because empiricism means that the deepest truths, our closest access to truth comes through the body, comes through our body's physical capacity to be embodied in the world, to be experiencing things directly. And so that's a really important thing that I try to impart to my children is that, you know, your body is navigating you through this life and your most direct access to truth is with your body. 
And um, I think handing children that as a tool as early as possible can help them go into the school day with intentionality. So if they're given intentionality in entering the school place and they have been given, you know, this deep connection with you in going there, that that's very meaningful. I think a lot of the scenarios where children are being indoctrinated, you have that standard family uh, sort of schedule where the kids are at school all day, the parents are at school all day, you see each other for a few hours in the evening and then it's bedtime. Um, and I think there's, you know, there's screen time that gets put in place of deep family connections. Yeah. You know, there's just a lot of ways that modern life has disconnected the child from the parent. And I would say that a lot of that is intentional, but you can become very intentional with your parenting by getting to know your child more deeply than your parents ever tried to get to know you. And I think that that is the biggest tool we have in this whole war is knowing our children so deeply that we can see where they might be open to certain forms of social engineering because it's unique to each child, right? Each child has places where they're more open and more defined, you know? So for example, my younger son, he would be much more uh, misled by gender ideology than my older son would. My older son, he walks into a room, he knows who he is. There's no one who's going to mess with that. He's hundred percent clear. You know, that's just who he is. My, my younger son is more about reflecting on other people and he's influenced by others in different ways. I can see the ways that both of them are open to different kinds of social engineering. And so you want to be able to protect your child uniquely in the way that that child needs to be protected. And if you know them deeply, then you'll be available to do that. That's it. You have to know them deeply. And I think, again, I'm blessed that I have the ability to be at home and work from home. And, uh, I, you know, I saw my daughter, I mean, now for the first time, the, my wife and my uh, daughter are for a month, they're away on holidays uh, visiting um, one of the grandmas. And just before they left, which was about two weeks ago, more than two weeks ago, um, dude, I had so much anxiety. And I was like, not, not only going to miss my wife, but I was like, I'm going to be separated from my baby. You know, it's mm. never happened. Yeah. Like I've, the longest I've been away is like two days and I had so much anxiety and I didn't want them to go. I really didn't want them to go. I wanted to, I wanted them to miss the flight or something, you know, <laughs> <laughs> but um, <clears throat> kind of got, had to get over that obviously. But um, I think it's such a blessing to see your child, like every, every new word and every new skill. And like she, we, we tried to do the, <clears throat> the baby led weaning. And uh, at um, a year and a half, she was eating on her own. Like she would, you'd give her a jar of yogurt and throw some berries in it. And there she's scooping the yogurt out. Okay, make it a little bit of a mess. But at, at 18 months and, I, you know, some kids I know in, in our family, they were still getting spoon fed at three years of age. So think of the what you said, exactly the, the confidence, the autonomy the and i know you heard you use this word the sovereignty i think this is if we teach kids to be sovereign from yeah. and and uh it, you can see it in my daughter already she has a I, I didn't know this until i had kids that they have their own agenda they have their own intentions they have a mind of their own and she's quite assertive in that and i i feel like um if it was a boy or if it was some, some other configuration the parents might try to like exert their will you know it's my house my rules you do what i say until you're 18 but i feel like there's better ways to to interact with children so that 
they can become like us, like you and me, like sovereign thinkers, free thinkers, you, uh, take no crap uh, and question everything and evaluate things as they come. Don't just blindly accept, you know. Um, so I love what you do. Like, I love you already. I love you. You're just really ticking all the boxes, man. Um, you, you mentioned phones and tablets, screens. <clears throat> There's something that we're already starting to struggle a little bit with it. When my daughter sees someone using a phone, she's like, eh, 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 I want to see what's on the screen Then she wants it. So it's gotten to the point where uh, if she's around, you can't even take your phone and check your messages because <laughs> she wants yeah. it. And we want to really stave that off for as long as possible. What strategies do you use and what advice can you give parents out there? Well, I mean, uh, again, I, I'll refer to how different our kids are. So, you know, we have one kid who struggles way more with, with screen time than another. Um, for him, there's just uh, my, my older son, there's more of a strong fixation on it. But then again, some of this comes from his passion for video games. And he has, you know, a desire to learn coding and to create his own video games. And so we try to balance uh, nurturing this passion because, again, there is this intrinsic desire for him to get into that space and into that culture. And like he, he's very into video game culture. And I don't think there's anything inherently wrong with that. But there is also the fact that, you know, there's a sensitivity to all the blue light and to the excessive screen time. Um, so we have really worked for years, played with different structures, different levels of him having freedom versus us saying, you know, this is better, this is worse. And we've had sort of varying results and some things have worked, some things have not worked. So it's been a lot of sort of mistake making and experimenting. Um, you know, one thing that we've noticed, this gets back to knowing your child very deeply, is that um, our son uh, can take in more information in the evenings. And so there have been times when allowing his video game play to be in the evening is actually more aligned with him. Um, and so seeing the way that, that video games have affected his nervous system at different points in the day has been an interesting study. Um, we did invest in some screen time glasses to reduce mm -hmm. the amount of blue light. Um, and I just noticed that in general, screens, and this is not just for kids, this is for us as adults too, is that screens disembody us right? They sort of, they remove us from our bodies and being on social media all day, this is like a disembodiment ritual that is mm -hmm. ongoing. Um, and that, that is of course a big part of what's happening when your children are on screens for a long period of time. Um, there's this sense of disembodiment that is ongoing. Um, so we've employed a couple different solutions. One, things that, one thing I sometimes do is when my son is done, uh, you know, playing video games, I will squeeze him or wrestle him and really like get him back into his body, get him embodied, get his nervous system going again. Uh, you know, helping him with that embodiment process can really just be a matter of like one long bear hug. Uh, it actually has made a difference a number of times. And I've wow. noticed when, you know, when, he, when they don't get that help getting back in their bodies, they become dysregulated and then the rest of the day is harder for them. So wow. being sensitive to that, I think is really, really interesting. And we also, the other thing that we've done to try to curb the effect of some of this is we have a projector instead uh, that we use instead of the TV as much as we can, because the projector is just light reflected off of a surface, whereas the screens is actual blue light that has that neurological effect. That's another way. So when our kids, if they're watching TV before bedtime, it's only on the projector. It's never with a screen that has blue light on it. I love that. Actually, funny. Uh... I when we got this apartment a couple of years ago, I installed a massive projector screen, 
And until my my girls uh, went on holidays, we'd only like use it two or three times. So now I have it down and I'm I'm watching like videos on physiology, genetics, and a few movies and 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 some BS stuff just for entertainment. Um, but I I didn't even think about the because I noticed it, it's not affecting my sleep watching stuff until like ten in the evening because I'm so yeah. I'm so all about my blue blockers and not exposing my skin to too much light. We have red LEDs all over the house for the evening time, but I notice I'm sleeping just as well. So using a projector, in fact, does it's not light being emitted; it's That's light right. being reflected. Dude, genius. Yeah. Yeah, it's really I helpful. Love we it. do the same thing. Our nighttime TV is adults only on the projector. We don't mess around with that. <laughs> I I had no idea of this such a benefit to this. Thank you. I I now feel less guilty. <laughs> yeah, <that's good. laughs> can I can I ask you how do you find the time for all of these projects that you do and to be a decent dad? Damn it. I mean, honestly, it is a huge, huge struggle. I'm not going to lie. It's, it can be stressful trying to produce enough content and build this, this, you know, the particular business that I'm building has been very, very difficult. Um, so I wouldn't say that I have even successfully found the time. Like I'm still yeah. sort of sorting it out. Um, but I think for me, it's a matter of prioritization. Um, I am willing to take the hit in lifestyle and even for a time financially, if it means being present with my children during these formative years. And I think that's an important thing to understand. I think there are, there are some families or some parents, I should say, who maybe don't consider taking a hit in terms of their lifestyle just to have their kids around more. And to me, that's worth it. Um, you know, of course, I'd like to have both. Where, you know, and, and that's the goal is to, to build my business up to its maximum level of success and be with my children. But these years, these formative years are so, so crucial that to an extent I've allowed some sacrifice. Um, that being said, you know, I, I really tried to adapt as best as I could to the whole situation with lockdowns and everything. And I was kind of forced to adapt in this way. So before all of the lockdowns, I was working a number of different jobs. So in addition to working as a minister doing weddings, I was uh, working regularly as an actor doing comedy uh, theater around Toronto. So I was doing like two, three shows a week. I was working as a personal support worker um, with people on the autistic spectrum, doing sort of mindfulness-based guidance, helping them through the community. All of that disappeared with the lockdowns. Um, and so I was forced to really only focus on producing online content and making this my main focus. And so I built uh, you know, a 4K film studio in my house and started trying to figure out how to do everything myself, how to take... A production from beginning to end without anyone else's help and uh i just was kind of forced into doing that um so now i'm getting into a groove where i can produce things much more efficiently and i can make that more high level content on my own uh and it is getting better i mean it's getting better in terms of the kids being older it's easier to have them sort of step away when i need them to step away so it has gotten easier um but mm. i'm not gonna lie it's been super super challenging yeah dude i the last several months I was working on a course and some days I I was waking up between 2 and 4, 5 p.m. Liter of coffee, come up here, record videos, you know, uh, um, uh, research, record, edit, publish everything. And then my daughter would wake up at 10 and then, you know, go help out. And then she would take a nap back here it yep. was savage, dude. And I, yep. I think the way you frame it, though, I'm, I'm definitely going to rethink something such as maybe 
you don't have to be so pedal to the metal. Maybe you don't do three courses a year. You do two courses a year and uh, you are with your daughter or your child more. And maybe the business will, will take off slower, but the kids will get older. It will get easier and yeah. you'll never get those years back. Yeah, exactly. So I have to remind myself that I'm making an intentional sacrifice sometimes because I maybe get caught up in more of a business mindset. And, and then I have to remember why, why I've set myself up. It's like why I made this so difficult for myself. And I'm like, right, of course. But it takes reminding. It does because there's a lot of pressure. Of course. And it, actually, people with our star sign tend to be like that, very driven, to, o- often to the detriment of those around them. So it's especially it's good if you have a partner that can kind of steer you back or bring you down. Or I always like to joke uh, that I'm I'm fire and my wife my wife is water. So when I I burn too too fast and hard, my my wife will psh, drop a water bomb on me just to cool me down and slow me down. You know that kind of. <laughs> no, way. I I'm, I benefit from a similar similar experience with Amanda here. She very much balances things out, and uh, you know her devotion to our choices has been just immense, and is really the only way I've been able to do what I've been able to do is the sacrifices that she agreed to to uh to make this happen as well and um you know i can already see how it's worth it you know just having having my son teach himself to read this is yeah. a very recent thing right this is only the past couple weeks wow. he just all of a sudden it clicked Dude. and and now he just you know, i mean it's just crazy and it's a crazy victory because of how much heat we took from family and community and how many parents are like what, what are you doing you're not you're using a <laughs> curriculum why, why are you not doing that what's going to happen what's going to happen to them and that you know having to like fend off all of that and being like mm. no my child is designed to learn and his passion if you surround the children with what they're passionate with they will it will happen like it just does it's it's unbelievable but it's beautiful and you know, there's a researcher named Peter Gray. Oh, yeah, we have his book. So good, right? And his yeah. whole focus is play, right? Yeah. And he has a TED Talk that's really great. He talks about the decline in play and that the actual opportunities for free play for children have been on a steep decline over the years. And so we seek to correct that. And so we've been trying to create as much free play for our children as possible and trusting that free play leads to deep learning and also recognizing that struggle and failure leads to deep learning. And this is something people don't understand. There's very interesting research. I talk about some of this in my series, Worlds Within, that shows that, um, you know, in the schooling system, they would study the results of kids being put through certain courses with certain teachers. And when they followed up with the students years later, uh, they actually found that the, the teachers who had worked with the student to help them get that A+, Uh, Those kids ended up having fairly shallow learning and not absorbing what was going on because the teacher and the student, they were both focused on getting that grade. Whereas the teacher that allowed the kids to struggle and even fail, those kids experienced deep learning and ended up being able to recall a lot of that information years later. And deep learning has to do with learning something deeply enough that you can use it in multiple domains of your life, not just within the domain where you learned it. And this is what they found was that there was more deep learning in areas where the children were allowed to struggle and fail and go through that process instead of this externalization and being like, get the A, just try to get the A. And then it becomes about that and not about that deep learning. And so to me, like deep learning is a really beautiful concept because that's what we want our children to be able to do. You don't want them to just be good at math problems when they sit down for a math test. You want them to understand how to apply these math skills in multiple domains of their lives And the only way to do that is to really have them learn it in multiple domains. So they learn it when they have to do 
think, you know, when they have to do laundry with us at home and, you know, we're like putting money in the laundry cart, they learn it when we go to the farmer's market, they see it across multiple domains and then they absorb it in that way. Uh, to me, that's like, you know, that, that's such a great way of understanding what's happening in the child and the difference between deep learning and superficial learning. Yeah. You, when you were talking, it reminded me when my, my daughter, dude, again, year, year and a half, she learned to put her own shoes on. But I remember when she would be struggling, she, ah! you know, these noises they make because it's not it's not coming on and then she the, she couldn't loop the thing she still can't loop the thing and um do the velcro thing but she was just like along the whole way she was like yeah get upset leaving it coming back to it you know i think actually this is somewhere where some um uh somewhere where i need to rein myself in because um you know guy a lot of guys are problem solvers mr mm -hmm. fix it so you're always like here let me help you with that but I have to stop doing that and just let her get frustrated. It's not the end of the world, for God's sake. Kids have a healthy way of getting frustrated. Not like um, adults where we get frustrated or we suppress feelings and then we hold grudges, resentments. Kids, it's like a dog. You know, the dog gets scared, shivers for a bit, barks, runs away, and then shivers it off or whatever, shakes it off. And it's back to homeostasis, whereas we are like ruminating and stuff like that. So... Love it, bro. Love it. A um, couple more questions for you. Uh, let's let me just ask you how how is uh, how has daughters cut daughters of the West been received so far uh, by people? I mean, it's been very impactful for people. I think because the way that I laid it out was very much to speak to the left brain and the right brain, and I think this is some of the feedback that I actively got was that uh, you know I I tried to use a very artistic approach, so there's a lot of very sort of poetic. Uh, imagery, very sort of diverse poetic imagery that I'm using to communicate what's going on that is emotionally evocative. And I tried to pair that with just really strong research, trying to show the facts of what's going on and make this about, uh, you know, people using their left hemisphere and their right hemisphere to really comprehend so that I'm leading them to a sense of emotional impact, but also empowering them with information in terms of what's occurring. Um, you know, that has been some of the best feedback that I've gotten, that people really felt that there was something artistic being communicated that was, you know, not just about uh, a sort of documentary that just lays out things out fact by fact. Um, and that, I think, is really what I was going for. And it's really how I operate as an artist. Uh, you know, I, I have always been intrigued by using uh, emotionally evocative symbolism and poetry to speak to deeper parts of people and trying to pair that with the data and the research. Um, so there's been a really, really strong reception. People have felt very, very impacted by it in terms of being called to protect girls and to protect daughters. And um, I think people feel a bit relieved when they are brought into this larger perspective and they really get a clear understanding of, wow, this really is not political at all. And I don't have to take the political angle. And I have, let's say, for people who are more you know, on the right, uh, side of the political spectrum, let's say, uh, giving them the whole piece that is tied to cosmetic surgery and labiaplasty and that being a whole foundation in our culture that was there before gender ideology, that gives people a place to start with someone who's on the left who may be really like, really believe that they're, they're protecting gender nonconforming kids, right? They're not necessarily like bad people, you know, they come from a different side of politics, but they love and want to protect children as well. And this, I think, gives people a way of entering the conversation 
that is more neutral. And that's the whole goal of what I'm doing. I want to save girls from this. And so I don't want to couch it into one side of the political spectrum because it, it is not a political issue. Um, so I've been really, you know, pleased by the feedback that I've gotten from this. And um, it's definitely inspired me to keep going and to keep developing my film style along that sort of path of balancing left hemisphere and right hemisphere thinking. Love it, dude. And you weren't afraid you're going to get canceled or anything? I mean, I have faced censorship. Don't get me wrong. I had, um, I recently had uh, one of the biggest film distributors uh, tell me that it's misinformation and they won't publish it, which sucks because this is a distributor that uh, that delivers it onto a whole bunch of different streaming platforms. Um, so I have experienced some of that. That being said, I'm really not afraid of being canceled. I really don't care. I have dealt with censorship for years. Um, that was actually a big part of my path. Like I, I was running this, this, you know, this huge think tank on Facebook. Uh, it was like 14,000 members and it was challenging official narratives and it just got nuked and I got permanently booted from the platform. I started getting shadow banned everywhere. Mm. Fortunately, this was at a time when I got invited to make a syndicated series with rise TV, which was at the time edge of wonder. And so I just, I spent years just refining my craft and being like, okay, well screw the censorship. I'm going to get really good at what I do. And Daughters of the West has been me coming out independently for the first time. So everything else I produced up until now, I was selling to these streaming platforms. Uh, and this is the first thing I've released on my own. And I really, I'm just totally unafraid of the censorship. I'm totally unafraid of being canceled. I really don't care at all. Uh, I will just keep going. And I believe that the, the force of my network is what will deliver the, the impact. And my network has grown extensively in releasing this film. That has been a really startling thing is just the people that have flocked to me and the relationships that have formed. It has been just an absolute explosion. And I trust that in this war that we're in, you're really looking at a network versus a network. And so, uh, you know, we are up against a network of uh, of groups of, of elites, you know, and, and they have their network. So the more we can form powerful networks, the more their censorship and their cancer culture will just lose its power. So I'm just going to keep growing my network, and I believe I believe that what I am doing will be successful based on that and understanding. Very inspirational words. Um, well, if you're on Dauntless Dialogue, I'm I'm aware. I listened um, Adam Riva. I first heard him on Michael Tassarion and David Whitehead's podcast, Unslaved. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, if you're if you're on Dauntless Dialogue, you are dauntless. So. Big respect, you know, as a as a father of a young girl, you know, this is what I, I want to thank you personally from the heart for for what you're doing, because we myself and my wife, we've we've uh, often spoken about you know, what's going like. We have to keep her safe from screens and from all this, uh, you know, gender ideology being shoved down kids throats and you're you're afraid because when you leave your child in a school you don't know what what those those teachers are up to what agendas they have and who whose agenda they're executing so um stuff like having stuff like this is um it's it's, it's imperative it's it's imperative that we support people like you and continue to help you spread your message bro I appreciate that. You know, I really, uh, 
I really believe in the ability to produce media that's rooted in free thought and to to try to grow a network of people that are looking to do that. And I'm actually I'm, I'm trying to plan screenings right now and uh, take the film on tour and screen it at some cinemas uh, around Canada. Nice. And, uh, you know, we already did one for the world premiere. We did a screening in Arizona. And that was an exciting event because it was really about that in-person networking and really like getting getting these, the, the dialogue going in person is really powerful. Um, but I also have been very focused on trying to provide practical solutions. So if people go to daughtersofthewestfilm.com, you'll actually see a resources section. And that is a library of resources that I've designed to help families navigate this. So to get a hold of research that is censored, to get plugged into networks of therapists that are not indoctrinated, to get plugged into networks of families who are also coping with this. Uh, there's resources on keeping your children off of social media uh, up until a certain age and helping keep their, their screen time low. There's resources specifically focused on that. So I've just been trying to build out this library that is hands-on practical solutions that to an extent are being censored uh, and, and to give people access to what they need to make an informed decision because a big part of this is information warfare. And so, you know, getting good information to the parents is super, super important. And so that's a big part of what I'm trying to do with this film and, and with some of my upcoming work as well. I've got a, a book that I'm working on and then another film that I'm working on too. Dude, you must drink a lot of coffee. <laughs> <laughs> I have to, I, when it burns me out, I have to stop. I have to go on my coffee breaks, but I, I push it to the limit for sure. If you ever need uh, help with nootropic stacks and supplements, let me know. I've done a ton of research. This is cool. stuff, optimizing yes. brain function. Yeah. Uh, second to last question. Well, last question. Then we we'll, you can tell the folks where they can find you. So the, for my solutions talk segment on the podcast, uh, Simon, what are you doing that others can do also to increase their freedom, self reliance, autonomy, and/or resilience to the challenges that we face this decade and beyond? Well, I mean, I am looking to have my children help me sort of develop myself. And I mean this in terms of kind of like what I was talking about earlier. I reflect on innocence so often and I reflect on it in terms of fifth generation warfare. So I really encourage people to understand the war that they're in. You can become very practical, very inspired, very solutions oriented when you study what fifth generation warfare is. That's the war that we're in. And um, I really want people to understand modern warfare because of the experience that I had in understanding it. So fifth generation warfare is this modern kind of warfare that it's a, it's a kind of warfare that uses uh, every kind of technology that's out there to wage psychological warfare on people and to, to attack people. But it's specific in the sense that it's a kind of warfare that is designed to have you not know you're in a war and not know you're being attacked. And this kind of warfare, uh, once you are aware of it, it becomes very inspiring in terms of how to be of service. And that's the experience I had is once it clicked for me, oh my gosh, we're in this new kind of war and it's everywhere and it's designed to be hidden. Suddenly I really felt filled with purpose. I felt like, okay, I can become a guide in this specific battlefield. I can help people get clear. I can help them navigate it. Um, you know, a big element of fifth generation warfare is narrative warfare, understanding that you are constantly being pulled into different narratives. So comprehending that and learning to use your brain in very specific ways. So for example, the left hemisphere of your brain is very fixated on certainty, on knowing what's happening and staying within that certainty and finding the one 
uh, certain perspective of what's going on. And while that is sometimes helpful, we uh, as, a, as a civilization, as Western civilization is very entrenched in the left hemisphere. We're very stuck in that one way of using our brain. Whereas the right hemisphere of your brain, it is what you use for doubt, for uncertainty, and for your capacity to hold multiple truths at once, maybe even multiple contradictory truths. This is a flex that I need, that I really like to encourage in people. I believe we need to be able to see multiple narratives at one time. We need to be able to rest in doubt and uncertainty with comfort and allow doubt and uncertainty to exist. And we need to be able to uh, challenge what is going on by holding these multiple different truths. All of that has come from my understanding of modern warfare. So that is one thing I really encourage people to do. The other thing that I'm very much working on right now is teaching people to come back to uh, ritual and ceremony and specifically rites of passage. And so I encourage people to reflect on where, as adults, a rite of passage was maybe absent in your childhood and in your adolescence and where we might be able to introduce that to the next generation. So the book that I'm currently working on is a workbook for parents to develop rites of passage for their children um, because these are one of the things, this is what's missing. This is a big part of what's missing. It's a big part of why the girls in our society become so in, in, in immersed in gender ideology because it actually mimics a rite of passage. You know, the struggles of adolescence are very, very intense, especially for girls with the way their bodies are changing, the way they're being seen differently as sexual beings. Um, a rite of passage uh, for a girl is so important because uh, it helps them with that embodiment process. They're surrounded by all these forms of disembodiment. When you look at gender ideology, it mimics the rite of passage structure. It invites the girl, uh, you know, she's feeling strange, like the world is changing, she's changing. So she's invited into this new set of ideas, this new space. She is given a way to transform herself. She gets a new name, new pronouns, and she is led to actually physically change her body. And then when she goes through that ritual of transformation, she's then brought back into the community and especially if you look at this from a social media perspective, once she emerges all changed with a new name, the new body, she's then applauded and told she is brave and we applaud this new form that you've taken. Those are the exact structures of a rite of passage. Mm -hmm. So I am focused on bringing that back into the family. Um, that's what this book that I'm creating is going to be all about. So I encourage people to, uh, to take, take yourselves back to that place. And whether you're religious or not, it doesn't matter. Um, because really you want, I believe you want rites of passage to be born out of who your child is and let them be the source of how you create that rite of passage rather than imposing upon them a system of dogma and traditions that may not apply to them. Amazing. Amazing. Simon, thank you so much for joining us today. And before you go, please let the listeners where they can find you, connect with you, find your films, find uh, your series and everything. Right on. So uh, to see my latest work, uh, Cut Daughters of the West, people can go to daughtersofthewestfilm.com. Um, that will give you more information on the film. It will give you a link to go and rent or purchase the film, um, which also gives you access to another film that I wrote and that was edited by Adam Riva, which is called Vague Rules. So you actually get a bonus documentary uh, along with Cut. That's a, a Vague Rules is about a 35, 40 minute film. So it's a short one. Um, and so you can, you can uh, screen cut that way. And then there's also a link at daughtersofthewestfilm.com to sign up uh, to host a screening in your community. And basically you can fill out that form and it gets sent to me. And, uh, you know, we can negotiate how to make that happen in your community. There's the option of me, you know, hosting a talk, helping create dialogue, helping lead people towards practical solutions. Um, so those are the ways that you can engage with my latest film. 
Um, to check out the rest of my work, you can go to simonessler.com and that has my whole portfolio of work. I've got quite a lot that I've been working on over the years. You can see my entire catalog of work that's at Rise TV. So at simonessler.com, there's all the trailers, all the information for all of that. And then you can link to Rise TV and check out the subscriptions there. And then you can also see what I have on Dauntless Dialogue. Um, so I'll, there is my six-part docuseries, Superorganism. That's the one on the war on the family. People can check that out. They can watch episode one for free on Dauntless Dialogue's Rumble. Uh, and then you can follow me on all my social media. The links to all my social media are at simonesser.com. Uh, I'm most active on Twitter, or not Twitter. I'm actually most active on Instagram, somewhat active on Twitter. Uh, and people can sign up for my email newsletter at daughtersofthewestfilm.com. That is the best way to stay in touch with me, given any censorship and shadow banning I face. That's the best way to stay in touch and to keep on the tip of the spear with everything that I'm doing. I'm actually going to be launching a live show uh, at the end of this week, which will be streamed on Rumble and Pilled.net. And so keep an eye out for that as well. Brilliant. Thank you again, Simon. Thanks so much, bro. My pleasure.